Okay, so today we're going to have a class about the Seder and the mitzvah of matzah in contrast, in contrast with the mitzvah to drink four cups of wine. So it's not really a class about matzah, it's actually more a class about the four cups of wine. But in order to bring out what is special about the four cups of wine, we are going to be using matzah as a point of contrast. Good? Great. Okay. So... What I would like to first do is just talk about the actual practicalities of the Seder. Um, so we're all on the same page. Um, and then we will go into the observing some of the differences and then the chassidus behind it and what that means in our service of God and relationship with God and all that fun stuff that we talk about. Good? Okay, so now... There is a biblical mitzvah to eat matzah the night of the Seder. Okay. Now, the way this is done for the leader of the Seder, so if you're not leading your own Seder, then you don't necessarily do this. There's various customs about how many leaders one should have at a Seder. So some pe- communities have a custom where only the head of household leads the Seder. Some communities have a custom where every married man also leads the Seder. I'm good to learn by lead the Seder. And another custom is that everybody over the age, every man over the age of bar mitzvah leads the Seder. Um, I know we could like go on a digression about women and why there's no custom of women leading the Seder, but we're not going to do that because this is not questions and answers and that's not the topic we're going to address. Um, but if it really bothers you, when we resume after Pesach, we can have questions and answers about why there's no such custom about women. Okay? You sound happy to bring it up but not talk about it. I, I am. I am. Because I think it's important to have a mature approach to things, which is recognizing that something may be an issue and we're not dealing with that issue right now. Yes, we're, we're going to consciously make a decision that if that bothers you, which is fine, we're going to put it aside and not deal with it right now. Okay. Good? Yes. Okay. So the, the issue is that the mitzvah of matz incorporates many different elements. So... The mitzvah of reciting the Haggadah is supposed to be done over the matzah. The matzah is called lechem oini, which can mean poor bread, or <coughs> called bread of affliction, but also can be understood as bread of speaking, and the word um, la'anot, to answer, to respond, to speak. Oh. Yes. So the actual lacha is that the, the actual saying over the story, the Haggadah, should be said literally while the matzah is on the table. The matzah and the mar and all these things, right? Um, this is based on the verse in the Torah that says that the story is supposed to be said ba'avur zeh, that you're supposed to be able to point and say it's because of these mitzvahs Hashem took us out of the Torah. So you're supposed to point to the matzah. The matzah is something we say the Haggadah over. Now, because of that, the matzah that you say the Haggadah over, lechem oni, bread of speaking, but it's also poor man's bread, and that's why it's supposed to be a piece of matzah, not a whole loaf of matzah, or, I don't know, a whole cracker of matzah, whatever, whatever, a whole matzah. Okay? So in order to perform the mitzvah of matzah properly, one needs a piece of matzah, not a whole matzah. Good? Okay. On the other hand, the Seder is Yom Tif, it's a festival, and in the festival we have a requirement that we have Lechem Mishnah, which is the two whole loaves of bread, okay, to commemorate the fact that the mon did not fall in the desert, but the man did not fall on Shabbos or festivals. So we commemorate that by taking two loaves of bread to commemorate that fact that on the day preceding, Friday for Shabbos or Erev Yom Tif for a festival, 
that a double portion fell in order to honor Shabbos, the festival. So we have two, right? So everyone knows this. So now you have a problem because you need two whole matzahs, but you also need a piece of a matzah. Okay? And what is the solution according to almost everybody to this problem? You just have three matzahs and then you just break one. Okay? So the, the one leading the Seder has the two matzahs for the Lecha mission. These are generally, most people have a custom of using the top matzah for the, the, most, most people have a custom of stacking the matzahs. One thing you know about Pesach, there's lots of customs, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's people who have customs of hitting each other with leeks at the Seder and covering, this, <laughs> covering the table with romaine lettuce and like stealing afikomans and running around with a Seder plate and all sorts of interesting <laughs> customs, okay? But most people have a custom of stacking the matzahs. Some, cover, some separate this, put something in between, some don't put things in between. So you put the other, the mar and stuff on top of the matzahs, on the side of the matzahs, different, different customs. But mostly of the custom of taking a three matzahs, one matzah, the top matzah is whole. The middle matzah gets broken, half is used for the afikoman, and the other half is used for the lechem oni, the bread, a poor person's bread and the bread of speaking that the Haggadah set over. And then the bottom matzah is left whole, and that's also used for lechem mishnah. So that gives you a total of three matzahs. Good? Okay. Um, there's also the mitzvah of drinking four cups of wine. Um, I would like to just point something out about the mitzvah of drinking four cups of wine. Um, I'm sure you had a lot of classes about this, yes? No? Not about, no? The wine. Not about the wine. Okay. So, I would like to point this out. It is preferable halachically that the wine be alcoholic. However, it is more important that you actually are able to participate at the Seder, and also some people have issues with alcohol, addictions to alcohol, things like that. So it is not a requirement that the be alcoholic, but on the other hand, there is supposed to be alcoholic, because the idea is that being able to drink alcohol is also the idea of, of freedom. So, um, to connect to the idea of freedom. So, if a person is able to have wine with alcohol and still you know, participate in the Seder, and it doesn't give them any health issues, even if it's not a big fan and they prefer grape juice, it would be a praiseworthy thing to kind of push themselves in that regard and to try to at least mix a little bit of alcoholic wine into their four cups. <clears throat> Parenthetical note over. Something people just don't know. Even that being... What? Even for women? Yeah. Now, that being said, if you don't... If, you, <laughs> if, if it's hard for you and it's going to like ruin your Seder or your person has an alcohol addiction problem or whatever the case might be, you don't, it's not a requirement. The alcohol is not a requirement. Um, but the, 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 the actual grape juice or wine, a grape juice actually is a requirement. So um, barring drinking grape juice causing some, some life-threatening complication, one has to drink the grape juice if they find it disgusting or makes them sick. The Gemara speaks about one of the sages who would drink the four cups and get sick for several weeks afterwards. So, okay. so in the midst of drinking the four cups, and the mitzvah of drinking the four cups, there's many explanations, but the idea is that the mitzvah of the four cups correspond to different things. The most common explanation is that it corresponds to the four expressions that Hashem used to redeem us. Um, it, says that, it says in the Torah that Hashem used four different expressions, well, it actually says expressions. Um, I will take you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will take you. I will take you to be my nation. And so corresponding to those four expressions, we drink four cups of wine. Now, the cups of wine have a lot of rules to them. 
Um, one of the rules about the four cups of wine that people don't know is that the four cups have to be drunk at specific points in the Seder. Every, every cup corresponds to a particular aspect of the Seder. And if you just like down four cups one after the other, it, it doesn't really count. Um, the cups have to be in conjunction with things. Um, so the first cup is Kiddush. The second cup is about telling the story. The third cup is the benching, after meals, and the fourth cup is the completion of halal. This actually has ramifications. Um, children, both boys and girls, have to drink the four cups of wine. At what age are they required to drink the four cups of wine? Or really, is their father required to make sure they drink the four cups of wine? What? No. At bar mitzvah, you're required to do things for yourself. I'm only responsible for... I'm only luckily responsible for making six, sure six of my children do mitzvahs. One of them is that's his own problem. It's him and God now. <laughs> I made a bracha that says I'm not responsible anymore. Is that really what it is? Yeah. It's a bracha. I say, bracha Bless you, Hashem, who you exempted me from any sort of punishments regarding this one. So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> no. Uh, a, a father is luckily obligated to educate his children. And so with positive mitzvahs, the education is at the point at which the child can do the mitzvah based on their level of maturity. Um, negative mitzvahs, the father's required to educate the children from the moment the child understands the word no. So what point is a father required to tell his child not to turn on lights on Shabbos? From when he is against That's right. So how old is that? Six, six months. No, six months. No. Somewhere between one and two. But doesn't impulse control need to be there? No. Nope. Nope. So nope. they're not, they're going to not listen. Oh, they do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they still do it. No. At one and two, you can't not, like... I have seven children. I am telling you, as a matter of fact, somewhere between one and two, depending on the, depending on the child, the child's about to do something, you could say, no, and no. They understand that when you say no, they're supposed to stop. That they're supposed to get certain things are off limits. That's, that's but positive mitzvahs is when they can appreciate or they, when they can do the mitzvah properly. So with the four cups, they obviously have to be able to drink enough to fulfill the obligation, but they also have to be able to understand the basic idea of what that cup is in the Seder. So if they understand that, that Yom Tif is a holy day, they understand that they have Kiddush then, then they're obligated to drink the first cup. If they can understand the story of the Exodus and the importance of telling the story, then they're obligated to drink the second cup. If they understand the importance of thanking Hashem for our food, then they're obligated to drink the third cup. If they import, understand the importance of saying halal, okay. then they drink the fourth cup. Okay. So these four cups. Now these four cups are not a biblical mitzvah. They are rabbinic mitzvah. The rabbis instituted the obligation to drink the four cups. And again... Those four cups have, are, are based on many different things, the four expressions, and they're also connected to four different elements of the Seder. And a very basic reason for that is that, the four, is that we make something more significant by doing it over wine. So you'll find that a lot of things in Judaism, we put a cup of wine in there to make it very, seem very significant. It's a rabbinic ed, addition. Um, and the four cups, like I said, are supposed to be wine and ideally alcoholic. The idea is that wine... Um, is something that tastes good. It's something that makes you feel a little bit uh, more or less inhibited. You're more able to be yourself. 
right? The idea that you're on your own terms, you are a free person. Good. Mm-hmm. You gave me a funny look with your eyebrows. So I'm not sure so that's a question. Why, why is that a good thing? Why is that a good thing? Oh, that's why I'm all class. Mm-hmm. All right. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So now let's just summarize some of the differences between the matzah and the four cups. How many matzahs do we need? Three. How many cups of wine do we need? Four. Four. Matzah is biblical or rabbinic? And the wine is? Rabbinic. Rabbinic. Matzah, as we know from previous classes, is matzah supposed to taste good? No. No. Is matzah supposed to have any sort of like, be an, an, uh, uh, um, an, something that helps the person develop and to grow? Or is the idea of matzah just, it is what it is, right? Whereas wine, wine is, it tastes good. <coughs> wine, um, our sages say that when, when you drink wine, Secrets revealed, you're able to express yourself more. Obviously not too much wine, right? Then, then bad things happen. Okay. So we have some contrasts. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the one, the, the one thing that we're going to start with is there's a very important idea that, that the Baal Shem Tov teaches that everything is by Hashgacha Pratis. You've heard this idea before, everything is Hashgacha Pratis? Does anyone know what that ba- mean, what Baal Shem Tov means when he says everything is by Hashgacha Pratis? Which is a nice thing people say. <coughs> it's all by divine providence. Everything is in the lesson for you. Hashem says everything for a purpose. Okay. Okay. The first thing... The, the, you said two different things. Uh, let's, let's develop them a little. The first thing that I'm going to talk about is the second point. That every Shem does everything for a purpose. The idea of the Baal Shem is that everything, every individual thing has a significance to it, to Hashem. So in other words, the fact that this pen is on this table right now is important. It's important to Hashem. Do I know why it's important to Hashem? Not necessarily. Right? So it's not just the big things are important to Hashem, but all the little, small, the, things. small things. The corollary to that is that everything in the life of a person is important in Hashem's connection to that person. So everything in a person's life they encounter is Hashem communicating a way to serve him, to connect him better. Of course, that doesn't mean we always appreciate the lesson. The Baal Shem Tov also says to be able to see the lesson in everything requires a person to sensitize themselves. So, um, across the street there is a um, building. That building has stone walls and there's windows there, yeah? Why does that building have two windows opposite me and then one window on the top? Why does it have so many layers of stones? Are there answers to all those questions? Are all those things could serve as an instruction and a lesson to how to serve Hashem? They could. Does that mean that I have the sensitivity to pick up on what the lesson is? Not necessarily. Now, if that is true about everything, then all the more so the Torah, everything is by Hashgach HaPratah. So, if we have a mitzvah, say matzah, and the Seder, there's three matzahs, and that means there's something about matzah, the number three, go together. Otherwise... Would we need three matzahs at the Seder? Even though we did say that what's the purpose of having three matzahs? 
It's a technicality. You need a broken piece, plus you need two whole ones, giving you a total of three. But if everything is by Ashkacha Pratis, there must be some significance to the fact that matzah is done at the Seder with three matzahs, and not two matzahs, and not four matzahs, and not ten matzahs, and not twenty-five matzahs. Similarly, Now, if the if wine is four cups, that means there's something idea about the wine that has to do with the number four, right? You say, well, there's four there's four less expressions of redemption, right? But why does Shem use four expressions of redemption? You could have used five expressions of redemption. You could use two expressions of redemption. It didn't need to be four. So there's something about the number four that relates specifically to the wine. Something symbolic? You tell me what you mean by symbolic and then I'll agree or disagree with you. Scared. <laughs> okay, so then why don't we just wait and see. Okay. okay. And why is the wine the rabbinic mitzvah and matzah is the biblical mitzvah? Could it have been the other way around? Could have Hashem commanded us to drink four cups of wine the rabbis instituted the mitzvah of matzah? That's conceivable, right? And yet Hashem didn't do it that way, right? So that means that there's something about matzah which is fundamentally something to do with something being biblical. And there's something about the wine that has something to do fundamentally with it being rabbinic. So somehow the number three and biblical and matzah, they're all touching on the same fundamental idea. And wine and four and being rabbinic are all connected to the same idea. Good? <coughs> okay. So, does anyone know anything in Judaism that has the number four in it? What? What? We were just talking, had this conversation, yeah, like four worlds. And... There are four worlds. Why are there four worlds? Because she's like, well, five is an odd number, and six is too many. And two is just bleh. So four is like a nice number. Four layers of your soul. What? Four layers of your soul. Why are there four layers of your soul? Because that's why I'm Okay. We're not making much progress. There's true. There's four, there's four, there's four, there's four, there's four levels of the soul. Sometimes it counts the fifth, but the fifth is a little bit different, so we're not going to worry about that. There's four worlds. Four layers of life. Four layers of life. Yeah, 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 there's that too, right? There's the inanimate, the plant, the animal, human beings, right? The four foremothers. The four foremothers. Well, that's interesting, right? The foremothers are four, but the fathers are? Three. So maybe there's a masculine... Maybe there's a masculine feminine thing going on with the matzah and the wine. I was going to save that for later, but okay, you picked up on that. Good. So the wine is feminine. The wine is feminine and the matzah is masculine. What? Uh-huh. So there's something about feminine and rabbinic versus biblical being masculine. Okay, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> okay. How many letters are there to Hashem's name? Four. 
Why? Why those letters? Well, because what was happening is Hashem was playing Scrabble, and those were the only things that he had left, and he wanted to win. So he put them out, and, and, and everyone else was like, but that's not a word. He's like, yeah, it is. Well, what does it mean? It's my name. <laughs> and it has infinite value, so I win. <laughs> that's not how it happened. Okay. So, the, it, one of the ideas in Kabbalah is that the shapes of the letters are actually also have meaning. And so, it, um, Hashem's name, instead of thinking of it as four letters, we're going to think of it as four shapes. Good? Now, Kabbalistically, the shapes of the letters are slightly different than the way we tend to think of them. Um, Basically, all letters are made, up of one of, are made up of one of three elements. They're either a dot, or a line, or a circle. How do you know that? Or you just guessed? <laughs> <laughs> what, what other options? <laughs> what other options? I don't know. Squiggly? I don't know. <laughs> so, so, do we have a marker? We'll just do this, because this is a little bit fun. Okay. So... I'm going to write the Hebrew alphabet, okay? Not the whole thing. Just with dots and lines and circles? That's what we tell for our purposes. But 
I realize that there's more to it than just a box, but we're, for our purpose in our class, we're just going to focus on it being a. Is there more? Is there more specifically? Right. A hay is box like, but so is a ches box like, right? Mm -hmm. The letters are box like. There's a reason why this is a hay, but we're going to focus this class why it, why it's a hay specifically. No, we're just going to focus on this letter is, okay. as opposed to this letter is a, mm -hmm. as opposed to this letter is a. Okay. Zero dimensions, two dimensions, one dimension. Four dimensions. Two dimensions. Oh. Yes. Good. So, now I'm going to teach you how to teach. Okay? Teaching involves how many steps? Four. Very good. What made you think that? <laughs> it would be weird if teaching involves 17 steps and I teach goes about. Okay. What is the first step in teaching? What? Don't you first put them in your place, according to you? You set the rules. In a different class. So, yes. That's, that, 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 that's in terms of the actual educating of the student. But if you're going to do the entire process of teaching, what's that? Become a teacher? Get a student. No. Okay, so you have to... You're right. So, there's a teacher, there's a student. Now you want to actually <laughs> teach. What do you have to do? Prepare. That's true. What's step one of preparing the information? Know it. No. If you're learning it, then you're not a teacher. No, 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 so the entire subject, you need to know which parts of it are most important, because usually it will be time? Well, let's, so, so time is not the issue, it's the capacity of the student to learn it that's the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, no, so here's the thing. Well, let's say, um, let's take a subject we're all familiar with. Let's say you are going to teach history, yeah? to a bunch of, I don't know, let's say, seventh graders, okay? okay. Anyone know stuff? What are you going to teach? Pick a topic. The French Revolution. The French Revolution. That seems, okay, French Revolution, I like that, okay. Are you going to, um, okay, wh where exactly does the French, where does the French Revolution start? Do you know anything about the French Revolution? <laughs> okay, so why don't you make something you know something about in history? They, they, they like, um, bombarded the palace? They killed the king? This doesn't work. You have to pick something you know something about. Yeah, but I steal the name. Okay. Right, of course it was stuff before that. Okay, the American Revolution. What? The American Revolution. What are you going to start with? Um, the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre. Why did the Boston Massacre happen? Because of the, the what act? Something act? T act? Yeah. Okay, why was there a stamp act? Stamp act, oh. Because they needed money? Why did they need money? They were fighting France. I'm impressed. Colonists. No. That's when they started colonizing the actual British colonists. Okay, but why did they do that? They needed money. Okay, why did they need money? Because they were fighting war. 
Which war? French. Which war? <laughs> oh, 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 was it? <laughs> okay. Anyone here know anything about European history? Sorry. Anything about European history? Yeah. The, you heard of the Seven Years' War? Yeah. It's an important thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So a tiny part, a tiny part of the Seven Years' War was fought between the European powers, in European powers, on the North American continent, right? Okay. And so. It's only fair that now that Britain has to pay for all their expenses in the Seven Years' War, that they should tax the colonists to pay for the expenditures of defending the colonies during the Seven Years' War, right? Yes. Of course, Americans, because they're only focused narrowly on America, it's just the British were fighting the French. But is the Seven <laughs> Years' War just the British? Right. But you're already seeing the issue, like, where exactly do you draw the lines of what you're going to teach? So now do we have to go, like, to go through all the issues of the Habsburgs and understanding the Austrian-Hungarian Empire in order to understand the American Revolution? <laughs> And that's not what they did in American history class. They just like, we're not going to worry about why the British and French were fighting. <laughs> they were fighting, and somehow it was their fault. They just told us, like, they don't like each other. And I said, okay. Okay, so. That's like countries got war. What? You know how hundred years war? Yeah. They've been fighting for years. You know, do you know what's special about the Germans? They can make the French and the British like each other, or at least, or at least work together. <laughs> The only people that ever did that. <laughs> okay, but you see the problem here? Like, I, I'm using this as an example. Let's say we're going to learn about, you're going to learn about loving Hashem. Avos Yisrael. You're going to learn about the importance of the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. Whatever it is, you run into a problem that if you really, really know the subject, it is very integrated. It is very broad. It doesn't have these nice little... I'm going to teach you this specific point. And so the first thing the teacher has to do is to actually select out what is the point? What is the thing that I'm going to teach you? And that is actually, in some sense, artificial. The teacher has to figure out, okay, how do I get something which is small enough that that can be the thing that I'm teaching without it just being like, at the same time, it's comprehensive enough. But that's, that's something artificial because that's not, that's not, that doesn't truly exist in the knowledge itself. Like a true understanding of anything ends up incorporating what? Okay. Everything that relates to it, right? And so, it's very hard, right? So th- that, this is actually very hard. If you, now, if you're just regurgitating stuff that you've learned, <coughs> this step is not hard. But, then you're, but, but if you really know something very well, you have to select out what is the thing that I am teaching? That on the one hand, it is a simple and basic and isolated thing, so it can be just that thing, and at the same time, it's cohesive enough in itself that it can be understood, right? So if the teacher's like, we're gonna talk about the Boston Massacre. There were some people who didn't like some people, and so some people demonstrated, some people shot those people. Like that, like you need some background, right? But now if we just keep going all the way back, right, we have to end up with like the decline of the Western Roman Empire and, the, and you know, and then, and, then, and then, you know, how the, you know, and the whole, and the beginnings of the Holy Roman Empire, the foundation of the Habsburg, like, like, like it becomes a little bit ridiculous. Good? So what, the, so the first thing the teacher has to do is given who the student is to select a point that they're going to teach. And that selecting point, it's not, it's, it's not like they have a filing cabinet and like they just pull out one file to teach this. 
to make it a distinct point, that is the first step. That's actually probably the most difficult step in teaching, by the way. Have you ever noticed that there's some brilliant people that are very bad teachers? One of the main reasons of that is because the person who's a brilliant person is not able to select, I'm going to teach this one isolated thing and teach that in a cohesive, comprehensive way and not let all the vastness and depth of my knowledge confuse the issue. Good? Okay. Now, this all happens in the teacher's mind, right? Okay, step two. What's step two of teaching? So now you have your topic. You're going to teach <clears throat> the American Revolution. Right? You like, you have some sense of like what it starts, where it ends, like, you know. When does the French Revolution end? Is Napoleon part of the French Revolution? Is he the end of the French Revolution? Yeah. His whole, his whole career, part of his career? Yeah, yeah. So, so you've figured out, like, what exactly you're teaching. What are its boundaries? What are its parameters? You, you've isolated the subject, okay? Now what's the next thing that you do to do? Well, you look at the map. Step one was a point, right? What's step two? Expand the point. Expand the point. Right? Why do you need to expand the point? What's the problem with a point? You can't, like, grasp it. What? You can't really grasp it. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing to understand, right? You need to bring out its internal complexity. Now, here's the thing. Remember I said that the person, the teacher before they've selected the point they're going to teach, that point doesn't really exist as a distinct point. It's integrated into their whole, right? So when you bring that, when you select that point, then this is what I'm going to teach, you actually need to, in a certain sense, re-think, re Relearn it. Not like you don't know it, but you need to relearn it as it, and try to understand it as if you're just understanding that thing. Because your previous understanding of it was understanding as it's integrated into everything else. But you're not teaching everything else. You're teaching just that. So you now have to go and kind of re-learn it, re-understand it, but where the only thing you're understanding is that. So, for instance, um, Certain things are related, but they're not really part of it, so you are not going to bring them up as part of your explanation, right? Certain things um, have a better explanation if you put it in a larger context, but because you're not going to bring up that larger context, you're going to suffice with a simpler explanation, right? Or certain things will seem less or more important when you're only looking in that topic, but if you embedded it in the larger totality of truth, it would be seen differently. So you need to re-understand it as, as if that is the only thing that there is to know. Not that you're lying. Like you can say, like, there, you can acknowledge there's other stuff, but, but, but whatever we're going to explain has to be in that little self-contained bubble. And that's a new way of understanding it for the teacher because the teacher doesn't understand it in a self-contained bubble. The teacher understands it. Yeah, okay. So let's imagine you had a linguist <coughs> teaching fourth graders basic grammar. So now, a linguist understands how language works fundamentally, right? So 
the rule, the grammatical rules of language, they understand that some of these rules are inherent rules of grammar for all languages, right? And they understand that certain rules are just arbitrary rules of that particular language, right? They're also aware that there's something called prescriptive grammar and descriptive grammar. What does prescriptive grammar mean? A prescription as well, like a doctor gives you a prescription. What you should. And description, descriptive means? So you can talk about the grammar the way people talk. So you're, descri- you're describing the grammar. And you can be prescriptive grammar, how people should talk, right? Now, when you're in teaching fourth graders, do you, should you really get into that distinction? If you're teaching high schoolers, is that going to be relevant, an important distinction for high schoolers to understand? That there's perfectly valid ways of speaking, but in particular context, this is the right way to speak? Okay, right? And if you're maybe doing it at a graduate level to go more into the, some of the sociology of why those two levels of gra- two kinds of grammar exist? Right? Okay, I'm just arbitrating. Maybe the ages are wrong. I'm not, you know, I don't educate these levels. But you see what I'm so you have to re-understand the thing as I'm teaching this point to this kind of person. What goes into that explanation? What needs to be explained? What doesn't need to be explained? What needs to be left out? What needs to be elaborated upon? What needs to be given a simplistic explanation? What needs to be given an elaborate explanation? Right? And that all has to be done in the mind of the teacher. Once that is done, what's the next step? Say it to the student. You have to convey it to the student. Right? And the command to the student, right? So, th- and that's, a, that, that's a actually an involved process in itself, but you'll notice that conveying to the student, there's a line. What is a line? A line goes from here Down. to there, right? So the idea is, how do you take what's in your head and give it over to them? That actually has different elements. So one element of that is you have to figure out, like, where are you going to start? Like now, so the first step of that line is like figuring, okay, what's my starting point? When I start the class, when I start the lesson, what, am, what is my starting point? What is the ending point? What's the order in which I'm going to put things, right? And then you actually have to say them in a way that the students are able to follow along, right? So this would be like the actual planning of the lesson, delivering of the lesson. That's the line. What? That's step three. So step number one is where, you, where the teacher is, is creating somewhat artificially an individual topic to teach out of the vastness of their knowledge. Step two is then develop that into a self-contained piece of knowledge, something that can be understood on its own terms. And once you have that, then you have to figure out how to deliver it to the student and then deliver it to the student. Good? And once you've delivered it to the student, you're done. You have taught the student. There are four steps. Nope, you're done. Yeah, because the last step, notice it's also a square. If the student just listens to what the teacher has said, does the student actually understand? What does the student need to do? Right, the student needs to expand upon what until it actually <coughs> makes sense to them. Now, is their understanding going to exactly parallel what the teacher understood? But it's a similar process, right? They're taking what they have been given and expanding upon it, right? So if you look at it like this. The 
point that the teacher created in their own mind has to be developed in their mind. The, what, the point that the student has received has to be developed in whose mind? This is a line because that point is going, this is the transference from the teacher to the student, right? But I think we all understand is that if all the student is doing is retaining what they've been told by the teacher, has the student really learned anything? Okay. And can you say that a teacher has effectively taught if the student hasn't learned? So where, in one sense, teaching only involves three steps because the fourth step is actually done by the student. But without that fourth step, the teacher hasn't really taught. Good? So what is, so three, so th what does the number three represent? The, the teacher giving. The teachers, when the teacher is doing something, what is the student's role? Does the student have an active role at that point? No. No. It's when we get to four that the student has an active role, right? Now, does the teacher still have a role in step four? Really? And now the teacher can just leave. Well, usually they supervise the spot Okay. So there's there's the 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 teacher has to provide what is necessary so that the student can actually do that work. So for instance, the student needs to get a message from the teacher, needs to have a sense that the teacher actually expects them to understand, believes that they can understand, right? Um, is available for confirmation, right? The student can come back and say, well, is it like this or is it like that, right? And the student, the teacher's there. So the teacher plays at that point a supportive role to the student's active intellectual engagement. So what's happening is that who is passive and who is active has been reversed. It's the teacher who is deciding what this topic is. It's the teacher who's developing how, how it can be understood. It's the teacher who's figuring out how to convey it to the student, right? But once it's been conveyed, it's now the student's job to make sense of it and the teacher's job is to support that effort. Provide emotional support, provide clarification, whatever the case might be, but to provide what the student needs so the student can make sense of it themselves. Now you have teachers who don't do this. They, they just present the information and the student's job is to retain and regurgitate. So is any real learning happening at that point? By the way, this is not meant to knock the importance of rote learning. Rote learning is very important because the more you have retained and can regurgitate, the more you have to work with in making sense of things. It's just that that is not real understanding of anything. Make sense? Okay. So... Three is where the, the teacher is active and the student is passive. And four is where the student has become active and the teacher has be, uh, taken a passive or supportive role. Good? Okay. Now, we're going to just mention this because we, we, we're not going to make this the, the topic, but I think we're all familiar with the idea in Kabbalah that masculine and feminine parallels the idea of giver and receiver, broadly speaking. Okay. So how many four fathers are there? How many four mothers are there? In other words, when we're talking about the role of the giver being the, the um, active role, the associated number is three because there are three steps in there. But when we talk about 
the receiver taking the active role, that's the fourth step, so there's four, okay? One could ask the question, well, why don't we just have a set of three men and one woman? And the strange thing is we actually do. There's an idea in Kabbalah that the divine chariot is made up before it's holy tzaddikim, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Rachel. <coughs> so there you go, right? Three men and a woman. So if you, if you don't like the idea of having four of them and three of them, but you want it to be three and then a fourth, there's that idea also. So take your pick, whichever symbolism you want. Okay. Do mitzvahs come from Hashem or do they come from Jewish people? Where do mitzvahs come from? Really? So why are we drinking four cups of wine? Mm-hmm. Never told us to drink four cups of wine. You never ever told us to drink four cups of wine. Or to say hal, or to light Shabbos candles. Or to read the Megillah. Or to make most brachas. Daven three times a day. Um, what's Ruach HaKodesh? You mean like that prophecy? Something of the sort. So you're, what you're saying is that prophecy. Divine inspiration. Yeah. Okay, why not just call it prophecy? Why is prophecy making you uncomfortable? Because prophecy is a clear communication with Hashem. Oh. And being, it's not a clear communication, it's just influence. It's influence. So Hashem is whispering. Second <laughs> <laughs> setting. Thou shalt read the Megillah. <laughs> well, like, what difference? Like, 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 what difference does it make if it was like overt or not overt? Is it, is it... Last time I checked, Hashem said that there's 613 mitzvahs. We have a halacha, ain't no vishal chadish dover. The person says, you know what? There is another mitzvah that we should do. God told me we should add a mitzvah. You can't kill them. Yeah, we kill them. That, that, that's something we kill people over. I'm not kidding. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs to kill, to kill a false prophet. And one of the things that defines a person as a false prophet is the claim that Hashem has added another mitzvah. So if Mordechai was like, you know, we should do this whole Purim thing. And they're like, why do you say so? He says, I got a secret message from God. <laughs> that, that makes the whole thing invalid, right? But if Mordechai said, you know, I think it's a good idea. I really think it's a good idea. I really think that's what God wants. God really wants us to celebrate Purim. And then the rabbi's like, mm, let's take a vote. Most rabbis are like, yeah, Purim, good idea. Okay, it passes. Purim's instituted. It's very important. You start making claims of adding mitzvahs because of God sending you messages overtly or secretly or like, you know, that, 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 that's a very bad thing. It kind of seems like the same thing, though. It's just whether or not you say that it's from well, let me ask you a question. When you get married, would you like to tell your husband all of the gifts you would like for your birthday and anniversary so that he knows exactly what to buy or not? Why not? It seems, no, it seems practical. So you, so you're, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm glad you appreciate that. So your plan is going to tell your husband exactly what you want for your birthday presents and your anniversary presents, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Your communication. Right. She's like, so there's, the, there's, this, there's this particular <laughs> necklace, and I want this necklace. Yeah, no mistakes. Okay. <laughs> okay. And you don't feel like anything would be missing. 
creativity you're not interested in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, like, take the thought. Yeah, just like him, just like knowing. Like that's okay, I, I, kind of, like I kind of see where this is going, but also <laughs> I don't see where this is going. Because on one hand, like the idea is like, oh well, you want them to like get there themselves. Right. Why would you want them to get there themselves? Well, yeah, people think it's a deeper connection, but then there's also like room for mistakes. Which, if we're paralleling this with, like, rabbinic Judaism, I don't know. Like, wait, 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 Why? Um, because it shows that they're engaging with the information that they actually are internalizing it. Very good. So the idea is that right that the real goal of teaching is them learning, and them learning is is what they've internalized it. Okay. And if their only ability to get things correct is to simply <coughs> repeat back to you what you have told them, they don't really get what is correct and what's not correct. You see this with little kids, right? They ask like, "What's one plus one, two? Then you ask them, and then they and they ask you like, "Well, and what's one plus three, four? And then like they go through a bunch of numbers. Next they're like, "What's what was one plus one again?" <laughs> they, don't, they didn't. Yeah. And even if they remember, they're just remembering. They're not really getting. Okay, so now, um, so if your husband needs you to tell him exactly what you want as a birthday present, that means your husband has what sense of you? And you want a marriage where after 50 years of marriage, your husband is, as far as he's concerned, like, I mean, she's a person, she likes stuff, I don't know who she is. Like, that, that, that's what you consider to be a, a marriage? Really? Okay, right. It's hard to get style. Okay, yes, you, you see the issue? Now. Like, there's a certain, like, you either have a knack for understanding style or not. That's fine. That's like, fine. The, the you never get there. The point is, there has to be room for error, right? Like, if you are teaching a kid, you want them to get it wrong as long as you're able to correct them. Very and good. if you're getting a gift you don't like, it's okay as long as you have a receipt. <coughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure how this maps onto Judaism, because I, there doesn't really seem like there's no backsies. Well, so a remember I said that part of part of the the um, student doing that last step requires the teacher to provide the necessary support. Mm-hmm. So the teacher needs to provide feedback if they're getting it wrong, right? Then the teacher provides guidance as to how to do it correctly, right? The need, teacher needs to empower them. Right? That they are able to do it. All these types of things, right? Okay. So there's a whole area of the Torah about how rabbinic Judaism is supposed to work. Like, it's, it's, quite, it's quite involved. For instance, what are the rabbis empowered to do? What are they not empowered to do? When the rabbis disagree about what should be done, how are we supposed to determine what, what should, how to resolve that issue? Right? So there is God-given guidance and feedback as to how to go about this. 
Okay. For instance, I'm just going to mention some very specific things. Are the rabbis empowered to make up new mitzvahs? Yes, they are. They are empowered to make up new mitzvahs. Shabbos candles, challah, four cups of wine, Hanukkah, Purim, should I go on? Right, they're empowered. They're empowered to make up new mitzvahs. Now, right, now, the, 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 the power, the, the, they're empowered to make up new mitzvahs. The basis for those mitzvahs fit into two basic categories. One is for the enhancement of Jewish life, and the other is to protect us from, from sinning. Okay? So the rabbis can say this is forbidden because it will lead people to sin. Or the rabbis can say now people have to do this because it will make Jewish life better, either in a religious sense, in an economic sense, in a social sense. <coughs> can the rabbis just say, we really like green hula hoops, so now there's a mitzvah to use a green hula hoop every Wednesday. Are the rabbis empowered to make up mitzvahs like that? No. No. Right? When the rabbis are having their discussions, their justification for a mitzvah needs to be either the enhancement of Jewish life, religiously, economically, socially, or how this will prevent people from sinning. Okay. Um, are rabbis allowed to suspend Torah obligations? They are, on a temporary basis. So, for instance, there is a mitzvah to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, if Rosh Hashanah Shabbos, the rabbis suspend the obligation. Are they allowed to permanently suspend a mitzvah? No. Are the rabbis allowed to permit something that the Torah prohibits? No. Okay, so there's rules, okay? What if the rabbis disagree about whether or not a particular decree or enactment should be put into place? Majority. Right, the Torah says we should follow the majority of sanctioned rabbis. Okay, so in the times of Hedron, the Hedron take a vote. Okay, should, there is a... There is a just like the teacher provides guidance and feedback and empowers the student, right? There is that element. Right? Um, there are some rabbis who historically came up with the idea that it's okay to drive on Shabbos if you're driving to shul. Because since in a modern society, um, people live, tend to live far away from places, right? How, you know, especially when we talk about you know, suburban areas, People don't live in walking distance from things. And so in order for people to be able to observe Shabbos, we, um, and the importance of keeping the com Jewish community intact through communal prayer and things like that on Shabbos, therefore a person should be allowed to drive to shul on Shabbos. Is that legitimate or not? No. Why not? They're, They're permitting something that the Torah explicitly Forbids. prohibits. That simple. And when the bunch of rabbis started doing that, there was a split, right? Between what used to be known as Orthodox rabbis and now is known as Orthodox versus conservative. Reform was just like the idea, like halacha is just irrelevant. We don't, we don't even care about halacha. The conservative was this idea that we should, we should care about halacha, but we have to like accommodate modern things. And so like one of the first, and it was actually used to, it was very, it was, it was very fuzzy if you go back to the early... 20th century, the line between orthodox and conservative was very fuzzy. And there were a few issues where you started to see that distinction. One of them was the permission to drive, drive, drive to shul. The, the conservative rabbis only officially originally allowed people to drive to shul on Shabbos, not anywhere else, because it was specifically for preserving Judaism stuff. But 
Okay, so there's this, there's this feedback. There's, there's, okay. Now, can an individual rabbi have an opinion that in the end we don't accept? Sure. Right. But, but as a whole, as a community, the Hashem has empowered us. Okay. Um, matzah. We've spoken a lot about matzah. Matzah is bittel, right? Bittel is a very important thing. But if you are in a state of bittel, are you going to try and understand things for yourself and make sense of them? Mm-hmm. Wine, on the other hand, is about it tastes good and it frees you up to, you know, removes your inhibitions. It gives, put, allows you to do what you want. So it's the opposite tendency. So the number four, the idea that it's rabbinic, the idea that it's wine, all that has to do with the role that the Jewish people actively play, whereas matzah, the three, the forefathers, it's biblical, that all is emphasizing the role that Hashem plays. Can we become free if it's just Hashem's doing and we're passive? Or is there an element where we have to actually take ownership of our own freedom? (coughs) And that's represented by... The wine, because the wine, that's the fourth, that has the, the, the thing that has forced, the fourth step, that's where it's rabbinic, right? It's, it's an innovation of the Jewish people, not of Hashem. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit confused because I thought that four was like receiving, that's more passive. No, 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 no. <coughs> four, think about the student. When the student, when, when the teacher is talking and explaining something, the student is receiving. And so they're passive. But once the teacher stopped talking and the student's trying to make sense of that, receiving now means something very different. It means being active. active. And in fact, this, the teacher has now takes on the secondary role, takes on the supportive role. So there's, there's, a, there's a major problem that for some reason people always hear receiving and passive as if they're the same thing. Right. Like, what did you just do now? I said something. Yeah, maybe you maybe. thought about it. You didn't, you're, you're, I'm responding to you now. I'm like working off of your. You have a question. I'm trying to make make sure that you're understanding it, right? And if you don't, and if you ask a follow up question, then I respond to that, right? In this case, the giver is passive. The giver is the give, passive is not really the right way of thinking about it. The, the, it's, it's more supportive, right? That the role at that point of the teacher is to empower, to authorize, to um, provide feedback. Guidance, but the, 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 one, the one setting the direction is the student making sense of it in their own mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Um, there are how many expressions of redemption? Four. Four. Okay, what's the first one? I will take you out. What's the role of the Jewish people in that? Nothing. Not, nothing? Passive. We have to allow Hashem to. Yeah. And I will save you. you know, if someone's drowning in the ocean, what do, you, what do they have to do in order for lifeguard to save them? Nothing. It's kind of an active nothing, actually, right? If someone is drowning, right? They need to stop flailing. They need to stop trying to save themselves and let the lifeguard save them. Galti. Right? Um, what, same thing, right? Seeing a theme here? Okay. When did Hashem really take us out of Mitzrayim? When did that happen? Pesach. When did Hashem 
save us from Mitzrayim? I mean, you could say Kriya Samsuf, you could say earlier, it depends, because that, that was like them coming back, but yeah. Okay. Pesach time, right? When did Hashem redeem us? Pesach. When, the last one is Lakachti, and I will take you. Lakachti li la'am, I will take you to be my nation. When did that really happen? Oh, Harsinai? That's Harsinai. At what point did the Jewish people become empowered by Hashem, given the mitzvah, become transformed into His people? At what point is, it's not just what He's doing to us, but what we are becoming and what we're empowered to do. When does that happen? Harsinai. Harsinai. When Hashem gave the Torah to us, He, didn't, he gave the Torah to the, to the Jewish people. He gave, therefore, who has the authority to figure out and make decisions? Hashem or the, or the Jewish people? Who has that authority? If there's a lot of dispute and one of the parties says, well, God told me that this is the correct view. The, the, the Jewish people were given that authority. At the, what's the difference between this teacher who just wants students to regurgitate and wants students to understand is that these students are empowered to do what? Make their own conclusions, right? Now, if the teacher thinks they've gotten the wrong conclusion, they provide feedback to help the student get to the right conclusion. But at the end of the day, the student has to come to the place where they understand it for them. Okay. When do we become his people? When do we have that power? When we've given that, that's something that's at Harsinai. So if we're talking about Hashem redeeming us, Hashem taking us out, and Hashem saving us, and what Hashem does for us, and Hashem is, 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 is he's actively doing it, and we're passively accepting and receiving and all that kind of stuff, that's all very nice. That's the whole idea of, you know, biblical mitzvahs. It's the whole idea of the giver, the masculine. It's the whole idea of there's three stages where you have to figure out the step one and step two and then give it over step three. But then there's this whole other side of it, right? If we don't actually take that and make it ours for ourselves, are we truly free? If the student doesn't understand things for themselves, is it, are they, do they really understand? And so where is the ultimate redemption found? The ultimate freedom found? Is the ultimate freedom found in the matzah or in the wine? Is the ultimate freedom found in the mitzvahs that come from Hashem or the mitzvahs that the Jewish people innovate? The rabbinic mitzvahs. Again, the rabbinic mitzvahs have to be have to be there's, there's what we're empowered to do, right? If the student concludes that two plus two is a pineapple, right? <laughs> just the student is completely just confused, right? So there's this whole other side of freedom, and and this is this where it gets lost, is that we end up sometimes get very focused on. <clears throat> How Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim, Hashem saves us from Mitzrayim, Hashem redeems us, right? You can't get out of your own Egypt, Hashem has to pull you out, right? Etc. All those things we've been talking, right? It's all about Bittal, da da da. At the end of the day, just like the example of the student, at the end of the day, as much as the student trusts the teacher, listens to the teacher, and accepts the teacher, and, 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 and is able to regurgitate what the teacher said, none of that actually has made the student truly understand. What makes the student truly understand is that they've done, taken after all of that and They've made it their own, and the teacher is now acting in a clearly supportive role, not, not in the leading role.
And so on Pesach, even though it's not the time of, of, of mountain Torah, it's not time of giving the Torah, but if we really want to appreciate what freedom is, we have to appreciate that as much as Hashem takes out of its arm, as Hashem is doing, it only really becomes truly freedom when we take it. We take what Hashem is giving us and make it our own. Right? And we express it in, our, in a way that works for us as a people, right? without inhibitions, without just, without just the, the, the simple obedience and so even at the beginning of the process, we have to be aware that there's a role for that. We can't just ignore that. How does that play out practically? How does that play out practically is like this. At every... Let's go back to the teacher and the student. At what point does the student need to know that they have to actually do the work themselves? that they have to understand things themselves. At what point do they need to know that? At what point do they need to um, have that as part of their vision? That's when it happens actually, but at what point do they actually need to know that? So you can imagine, a student comes into class, right? Mm-hmm. And the teacher talks and explains and, da, 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 and they prepare everything, right? And then they're done, the teacher says, okay, so now you have to understand these things for yourself. If that's like a total shock to the students, it's not going to work. They need to know before they start learning new information so they can prepare themselves to right. apply it. Right. The idea is that as much as I'm going to sit and bittle and allow the teacher to teach me, at the end of the day, the I know even before that starts, at the end of the day, what's going to happen? I'm going to have to make sense of it myself. <clears throat> We're going to have to make sense of so if Hashem is taking me out of Mitzrayim, and as much as I've emphasized you, Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim, we're going to take ourselves out of Mitzrayim. Once Hashem has lifted us up to that other place, taken us to that other place, what makes it stick? Hashem or us? So when do you need to know that that's what's happening? When, 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 what, did, what did Moshe Rabbeinu say to Paro, right? That Hashem, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people... So they can serve me. Right? Where the people like, we are going to receive the Torah. We're going to become his people. I'm going to listen with total bittle to the teacher so that what? I can understand, I can understand what the teacher knows. Right? That, 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 that somehow passively receiving turns me into an object to be acted upon, right? There's a difference between passive receiving and just being an object. An object, hey, I moved the cup. That's it, the cup was moved. I moved the cup, the cup can't move itself. That's what we are, we're an object Hashem acts upon. A student is an object, is a place for the teacher to deposit their information and to regurgitate, to verify that the information has been deposited there. Right, that's, no, what, what is a student? Someone who's supposed to know in their own right. What does it mean to be free? It means that we, we follow along Hashem because He has such a hold over us, He has such a power over us, He has such, a, such, a, such, a, such an ability to, 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 to get at the core of our being, and that's it. We're just like following along like little sheep. Or does to be free mean that we're, we, we, we are acting of our own initiative in a godly way in the world? So we need to have that sense that to be free is not simply to be a passive recipient of Hashem. Not to, now, does, does the actual 
process involve a lot of bittul? Sure, it involves right. Hashem taking us out of Mitzrayim and saving us from Mitzrayim, redeeming us from Mitzrayim. Right? The teacher has to figure. The teacher decides the lesson. The teacher develops how it's going to be explained. The teacher is the one who conveys it to the student, and the student has to allow the teacher to do that themselves and to accept that. But that has a larger context. One very important thing that you need to take away from this class and in general in Hasidus is like this. Any time where it seems too obvious that either two, Hashem is doing the work and we're just bystanders or conversely, we are bystand, we're doing the thing and Hashem is the bystander, there's something wrong about that. So even though Pesach is all about what Hashem is doing and it's coming from above, He's taking us out, right? as much as there's matzah, 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 there has to also be the wine. As much as there's a biblical mitzvah, there has to be a rabbinic mitzvah. As much as there's a bittel, there has to be the fact that we are going to make sense of that, integrate that, live up to that using the abilities that we are empowered to from Hashem. And that has to be part of the process that has to be the entire theme. In fact, you notice something interesting. When do we drink the wine? Before the matzah or after the matzah? Before and after. In other words, the context, the wine provides the context for the matzah. The context of what the teacher is actively doing is that the student is supposed to understand. In other words, ultimately, why is the teacher doing step one, two, and three? So that the entire context of everything is the student's ability to understand themselves. The entire idea of taking us out of Mitzrayim is to bring us to Harsinai. So Harsinai precedes the Exodus conceptually, even though it comes afterwards. So even though the central theme might be the matzah, the entire context of that is the wine. Even though the whole idea is bittal and following Hashem and letting Him take us where where He's going to... But the idea is that we are going to be his people. We are going to live up to something. We have the capacity to bring godliness in the world and to figure out how that's supposed to work. Now, if you would like to take this into masculine and feminine, you can free to do that, but we're not going to do that today. We're just going to stand for masculine and feminine standing for the idea of the giver and the receiver. If you want to take that into actual gender, that's up to you. You could take it into You could, but we're not going to do that because we're already a little bit over time and that's not the kind of topic to start when you're over time. And I had no intention of teaching that. Because I, what I care more about is understanding us vis-a-vis Hashem. That's really what it's about in, in the topic of this class. So, yeah. And I want you to kind of see that, that what this class is doing is not pushing against the previous four classes, but putting a different context on those four classes. Can you, can you like, like say that though one little sentence? The reason why Hashem is redeeming us mm-hmm. is so that we can be His people. Being His people means that we're passive or we're active. active. So the context of us turning ourselves over to Hashem and allowing us to Him to take us out of Mitzrayim and to follow Him where we go is so that we stay passive or that we become... And that has to be part of the entire Savior experience. So there's four cups of wine that we drink and alcohol and it's supposed to taste good, etc., etc., etc.
it's like a nice concept, but like how, like what do you do with it? You, well, ask yourself like this. Is, does Hashem want you to depend on Him? Like, to a certain extent, yeah. Ultimately. For what? Yeah. No, He doesn't. You do, though. Does a teacher want their students to depend on them? No. Do parents want their te- children to depend on them? No. Sometimes a little bit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why not? Because that's not like... I mean, because if you really care, you want them to be up to your level. Like, that's right. Bashan doesn't want us to be Hashem. I... Why not? Do you think this whole being godly thing is just like a fancy figure of speech as a code for like being a nice person and like you know that or or, or we actually mean being godly? That's right. Godly means like God. In what sense? Whatever about God is godlike, we should have that too. Correct, we do depend on Hashem. But it's not about being dependent on Hashem. How do you get out of Mitzrayim? You don't. Hashem takes you out. Is it about depending on Hashem to take you out of Mitzrayim, though? That's what it's about? Or it's about being His people? Right? About that you, individually, the Jewish people, collectively, right? We are godly beings living in this world in bringing godliness into the world with our own capacities, with our own abilities. And that's what it means, like, only Hashem is truly free because he's not constrained, because he's godly, right? So that's what it means to be really free. So if, if someone experiences a Yitzhiyah time, then they can take this. Well, the idea is even before the Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim you're supposed to take this. this before, even before the student comes into class, it should be very clear the ultimate point of a class is that the student should understand for themselves. Right? That's the goal of a class. So before I start my journey of Bitzel, I should... Drink some wine. <laughs> but like, what is, I'm saying, what does that mean? You should realize that what is this all about? Hashem wanting to empower me and support me in my own capacity to be godly. Does the actual getting out of Mitzrayim, it's all, you know, Hashem's doing a bit, yeah. I'd say, I'll take you out, and I'll save you, and I'll redeem you, fine. But what is it all about? To make you my people. So before I start trying to realize how I'm insignificant, I should realize that it's all about me becoming God. That's right. But that does not sound... That sounds... It sounds... It doesn't sound... Well, that's the thing. Is Do you have any sense of what it is to really be godly? No. So maybe you need some betel, need some matzah. Okay. And let Hashem take you out of your preconceived notions. And then you can be really be godly. Okay. 
So you should maybe drink some wine after the matzah too. Right. <laughs> Seeing a theme here? Okay. Yes, this adds complexity. I just want you, like, when, when the idea is like very, very simple, you should always be suspicious that maybe it's a little overly simplistic. A, a teacher of mine once said that Hasidus is like a seesaw. A seesaw is only fun if it's unstable. A stable seesaw is where you have one person who's very heavy, one person who's very light, and just sits there, right? It's not very fun. Mm-hmm. What makes a seesaw fun is? They're both relatively equal weight, right? Or you can adjust where you're sitting on the seesaw, and so you're always moving back and forth, right? So there's always this dynamic, me, Hashem, Hashem, me, me, Hashem, Hashem, me, bittel to Hashem, my ability to be godly, my desire to be close to Him, my deference to Him, right? I'm doing shuvah to return to Him. He's coming to take me out of my imprisonment. Oh, it's all complex. Um, when you get married, should you tell your husband what kind of gifts you like? I mean, I still think <laughs> Definitely. You are setting yourself up for a life of misery if you don't tell your husband what kind of gifts you like. You tell, like... And it is... No, 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 no. Clearly. Very, very clearly. Like this, yes. Like this, no. Very clearly. But the goal is that eventually... He will learn to have some sensitivity to your taste and your interests, and then he will actually be able to be able to buy you gifts that you like. like. But so it's not about you telling him what you like, but you can't no, information so that so he can that learn what you like. That's right. But if you're just like, well, a real relationship where you know what I want, <laughs> right? We just, we just, we just drink wine all the whole seder, no matzah. It's not going to work. But it's yeah. It's about Matantara, it's about the wine, it's about, you know, our being godly. That it really does depend on the matzah. Good? I will see you next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you. Um.